We're going to invite the ushers up. We're going to spend some time in prayer, and then we'll take up the offering. Uh, Just a reminder, uh, if you're visiting, there is zero expectation or obligation, um, but our treasurer would be very happy if you did give. No, I'm just joking. Um, If you can, um, as well, online you can give. So if you uh, would like to set that up so you don't have to remember checks or cash or any of those things, you can do that, and you can actually have it set up so it's recurring. And if you forget to take it off, that would be great because it'll... No, I'm just kidding. It would be a great opportunity for you to not have to remember uh, bringing checks every week because I I don't know how many checks do we write anymore nowadays. Uh, Kids, as soon as we're done, I'm going to send you off to Sunday school. I'm not going to make you come up here like Ernie because I'm not Ernie. So let's uh, let's just bow in prayer and we'll just spend a few moments here together. God, thank you so much for, for the words that we have just sung, for the truth about who you are, for your love for us and your desire to be in relationship with us. God, there is no greater gift that we could be given than your grace and your mercy. And so as we spend these next moments together opening Scripture and reading from your word to us about what it means to be a Christian, about who you are and what it means to follow you, just pray that you would give us open hearts to hear and to understand what you have written for us. God, as we think about the situation that we have in our world right now, we turn on the news, it's very easy to become disillusioned or frustrated or confused. And so God, I pray that rather than trusting in all of these things that exist, help us to trust in you alone, knowing that you have purpose and plans behind everything, no matter what it is, that you are a God of redemption, that you take broken things, and things that seem irreparable, you, you can use them for your good. And so we thank you for that. Would we learn to trust in you more every day? God, we want to pray for those who are unwell, who are unable to be here with us this morning, whether that be to uh, illness or, or chronic sickness or, or whether it just be that they're just getting a little bit older and unable to join us in person. God, we pray that you would work in their hearts this morning, that they would know that they are loved and they are cared for, that we think of them often and we pray for them, but more importantly, that you love them and you are with them today. God, for those who who are fighting illness and need uh, a touch of your grace and, and healing, we pray for that knowing that you can do all things. God, for those, as we've already prayed, like Val and family, those who are mourning, who are going through extremely difficult circumstances, God, we just pray for them as well. Would you hold them up? Would they know that you are there with them despite the turbulence and the difficulty? God, as we look forward this week to a a new week in front of us with all kinds of options in front of us, we just pray for all the various ministries of the church. God, we pray that the things that we do are not some kind of obligation, but they're things that we are excited to do to serve you and to serve our community that others would receive the things that they need, both materially but also spiritually as well. God, would you give us opportunities this week to love people in a practical way, in a way that helps and encourages them, 
Would you give us the words to say to come alongside someone who is in need of a word of encouragement? Would you give us the courage to speak truth and yet to do so in a very gracious, loving manner? God, we pray for our kids as they head off to Sunday school here in just a few moments. We pray for our teachers that that we thank you for them, that they're willing to go and to spend that time with our children and, and teach them in a way that they can understand and is practical for them. God, we pray for each of the kids that go up. Would you give them Uh, attentive hearts and and great questions to ask and help them to grow in their own little faith journeys as well. God, for our gifts that we want to bring to you now, the tithes and offerings that we give to you. God, we know that you own everything in the first place. And so we don't give to you because somehow you need it. And we don't give to the church for somehow to, to get some kind of special acceptance or or for you to view us with some kind of extra maturity or something like that. We, we give to you because we want to bless the community that we live in. We want to bless the church that we are a part of, and we want to make a difference in the world. And so God, would you bless the gift, and would you bless the giver? Thank you so much for those that support and, and help equip Banff Park Church to be uh, a church that matters in our community. God, thank you for all that is going on here. And as we spend time in the word together now, again, would you encourage our hearts? Would you remind us of what is true, what is right, and what is good? Be with us in these moments now. Amen. All right, kids, you can, you know, run, walk quietly, gently. It's Deb upstairs, so get ready. I call, I call Deb the tornado. For those of you who know Deb, that's it's good. She gets, uh, right before church, she comes up to me. She's like, hey, we got some announcements. And then she just like hammered them down, and that's why my page was just crazy. But it's good because she's passionate and excited about it, and, and I know that Smonga loves having her teach, so it's, it's wonderful. Uh, okay, you can turn to Matthew 7. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. Um, last week... Because Mervyn was away. It was the shortest sermon on my record, I think. And he's very disappointed. And so the good news, Mervyn, and others who maybe... Yeah, that's right. We're going we're to try and keep it uh, succinct again today and, and as clear as we can. Um, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the last few months here. And we're just kind of nearing the end of it. But I just want to touch base about last week a little bit, just because there were some really good questions that were asked and conversations that happened beyond Sunday that I thought were really, really good, and, and I, it was so encouraging. So let me just say this. If you ever, uh, as we're studying through something on Sunday morning, if you ever write a little note down or you're like, man, I'm not sure about this, or, or, or what Greg said wasn't clear there, please come and find me throughout the week. Like, there is nothing more that I would rather than sit down and have a conversation with you about Scripture. Uh, and, and if I said something that was incorrect, then I need to be corrected on that. Uh, please do that gently, but please do that. Um, 
Sometimes, this will be a shock to all of you, I know, but sometimes I get too excited and I mix up my words and they come out in the wrong order and then there can be some really sketchy things that happen that's not what I intend. So I hope you can, you know, look past that and understand the motive there. But, but what we looked at last week was this idea of judgment. And it's just a horrible, horrible English word, at least in the sense of the connotations that come into our mind. Uh, and, and Jesus reminds us we are not to be judgmental in that sense of putting other people down so that our own insecurities can be raised up. That's, that's not the point. Uh, the point in, in judgment, is, as Jesus says in John, is that we would have right judgment so that we can come alongside each other, help each other, encourage each other. And so when you uh, became a Christian, you became part of this family of faith. And, and according to Scripture, the church has a unique role in that, that we would help and encourage and that we would even correct one another. And so the key is that we need to do that in love and in graciousness, all the while recognizing that I am not perfect and I have my own issues. And so I need to evaluate my own heart regularly and to make sure that I'm not correcting someone so that I can feel like I'm some kind of pious or more religious person, but rather I want to come alongside someone and go, you know, this thing that you said or this thing that you did, I don't think it's in accordance with Scripture, and I want you to be in the best relationship, the closest relationship with Jesus you can be, and that needs to be our only motivation for correcting people. But the Scripture teaches us to do that, and, and it's something that is hard because we get caught up in this, well, well, what right do you have to say something to me about what I'm living? And, and again, the reminder needs to be that all of it comes from God's Word. It's not my opinion. I don't think you need to shape up in some area because of some cultural norm. If we claim to be Christians, then we are supposed to spur one another on, as it says in Hebrews, to good works. We're to spur one another on in our love for the Lord. And how do we do that unless we come alongside each other and help each other? And so I hope that we become more and more every day a, a church of people that love each other and that care for each other. And it's not about bringing someone else down so that you can bring yourself up. It's bringing someone else up along with you so that we can glorify God together. And sometimes that might mean correction, but sometimes that might just mean uh, a word of encouragement or help. And so as, as we kind of move forward into that, Jesus now is going to talk about something really unique. And, and we're going to read verses 7 to 12. Uh, and if you have the ESV translation, which is what I preach out of, you're going to notice I'm going to stop in a kind of a strange spot uh, here at least in the ESV, but most of the other English translations, usually I really toot the horn of the ESV. Today, I got to say the ESV gets it wrong. Uh, most other English translations have this break happening after verse 12, and scholars are in kind of unanimous agreement about this, and so it seems like a strange thing. But So I promise we are going to hit verse 13 next week. I'm not just going to like stop in this weird spot and then, and then skip something next week, but we're just going to look at these, these quick verses here um, so let's read verses 7 to 12 together, and then we'll unpack this. Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks, uh, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now here's the challenge, right? As we've kind of gone through chapters 5 and 6 and now into the beginning of 
chapter 7, is Jesus has laid out what it means to be a Christian, how a Christian ought to live. But the reminder constantly through all of this is it's not saying this is how you ought to live, and if you live this way, then you will somehow earn salvation. That's, that's completely the wrong thing. Jesus is dealing with the motivations behind why we do what we do. And he is setting a, a huge standard, a very high standard, that if you get caught up in, man, I've got to live this way or I don't get to go to heaven, well, you're, you're only going to cause more anxiety on yourself because there's no way for us to live in such a way that we do this completely perfectly. Part of what Jesus is saying is, is that's the point of this, is that you, need, you and I need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. We can't on our own do what he's calling us to do, but we can submit our lives under the work of the Holy Spirit, and we can allow him to work through us so that the longer and the more uh, mature we become as a Christian, the more this type of person that we've been talking about is who we become. But we can't do it on our own. It's not just a matter of, and perhaps you've, you know, if, if you've had some kind of an addiction or something like that, whether you would call it that or not, is it's not just a matter usually of, hey, just try harder and it'll work. It never works that way. There's, there's resources that we need to give ourselves and, and surround ourselves with other people who will hold us accountable and help us in that journey. It's never just a matter of, I, I just have to smarten up here. And the same is true in our Christian faith. And this is why I'm so convinced why the local church, the local body of Christ is essential for our spiritual growth. I need you and you need me and we need us. We said that over and over and over in our last series on why church. Together we become the best possible versions of ourselves as we hold each other up, as we pray for one another, as we encourage one another, and as we correct one another. And that's what Jesus has been doing here is Let's deal with motivation. The Sermon on the Mount is radically different than religious duty. And so if you think of your Christianity as a list of things that you have to accomplish so that God looks at you with some kind of, um, you know, like he would look down at me and go, wow, good job, Greg, you did a really good job there. I, I'm, I'm, because you did a good job, somehow I'm going to let you come into eternity with me. That's, that's missing the whole point of salvation. That's missing the whole point of what it is to follow Jesus is if we come face to face with the Savior, our whole motivations will change because it's no longer about what I have to do or what I should do. It's about a family that I've been adopted into. We're going to talk about this in just a few weeks' time. It's about uh, understanding that I am loved and cherished by the Creator of the universe. And that he has called me to have a life of meaning and purpose. Not just, not just to make money or have possessions or all this temporary stuff that, that, that is done at some point. But to actually have value beyond into eternity. And so all of a sudden, if I've had that encounter with Jesus, my whole motivation behind everything changes. And it's not I go to church because I should. So I go to church because I get to go to church. I get to worship together with other saints. I get to be encouraged by them. I get to read scripture and study and, and hopefully be taught how to interpret and understand what scripture says to us so that we can grow. And so the Sermon on the Mount is bringing all of this together and using some examples that Jesus does. Like, yes, we, we should obey certain aspects of the law, but not so that we find salvation. We should obey them because as we obey them, we're loving God and we're loving our brother and our sister. And that's what we're called to do. And so Jesus gives us this extremely high standard, but then in verse 7 he tells us, now here's how to actually accomplish that. And what does the first word say in verse 7? Yeah, you want, you want to live this way? 
We've got to ask. God, would you be at work in my heart? And would you show me what I need? And would you remind me of, of how desperately I need you? Jesus has already taught us about kind of how to pray and given us kind of a, 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 kind of a basic template for that uh, and so that we would grow more in our prayer life. But here he's simply saying, when you need, when you understand, man, I, I, I don't know how to do this well or this situation is happening to me, we get stuck in this and we go, I need help. And so we ask. But here's something that I've been stuck on for a little while in, in kind of my own life and, and in kind of this culture, generally speaking. I think we have a very misunderstood view of what prayer is meant to be. I think we've looked at it more, and I've said this before, but I think we look at it more in the sense of God is our genie, and, and when we have a need, we go to God and we kind of like say the right things or, or ask the thing in the right way, and then God will grant that thing, and then we get that thing. When rather prayer is not meant to be predominantly about asking God for things, though that is part of prayer, it's meant to be about a relationship where we talk with God and we listen and we read scripture and we have quiet time and we learn about who God is and our relationship with him grows. Prayer is simply that, a conversation. Imagine, if you will, you're, you're with your spouse, but you never actually talk about anything until one of you has a need and then you ask the other person for that thing so that they could accomplish that thing for you or give you that thing. Your relationship would be just very immature. Your marriage would not last. We need to learn how to share things with one another and laugh with one another and cry with one another and hurt with one another and all the while be okay with all of those emotions that take place. And the same is true with God. Is yet we should go to God when we have need and when we don't know what to do, but we should go to God when we think we do know what to do and, and double check, hey, am I acting in wisdom here or am I acting in my own desire? When others are hurting and we don't know how to help, that we would lift them up and remind ourselves that as much as I love them, God loves them even more and God's called me to partnership with them in, in, in their life as well. And so I feel like sometimes we look at it like when, when we go through crisis, that's when my prayer life really grows because I don't know what to ask for, I don't know how to ask, and that's when I, I come face to face with God. But this should be the way that it always is. I think sometimes, too, we stop praying because God doesn't seem to respond the way that we would expect him to. It's, God, I, I need this thing. And it might be something that we really genuinely believe that we need this, and God doesn't respond the way that we should. And so we go, well, if God's not going to give me, then why should I ask? Well, here's what Leon Morris has to say. He writes, the person praying does not know exactly what he or she should be praying for, but he or she knows that the Father will not lead them astray. We trust that maybe God needs to redirect what my request is or this thing that I think I need. Maybe I need to go, God, would you, would you show me what I actually really truly need? Jesus says if we ask, well, we're going to find. But here's the thing is we might not find exactly what we're looking for. We might find something so much better, something so much more meaningful, something that maybe in the moment we don't think we need, but later on we'll look back on and recognize that that was way more important than the thing that we were asking in the first place. Sometimes we use this vernacular of like that God opens doors for us at the right time. 
Sometimes we're at that door and we're pounding through it and we're like, that's the door I'm going through, God, and I'm just going to beat it down until you open it for me. That's not asking God. That's demanding God. Rather, we need to pray and say, God, would you have me do this or would you have me go there or this job or this person to marry or this house that I'm going to have some of these really big decisions we don't know, but we just step out in faith and we allow God in his timing to do what he wants. But here's the biggest challenge is God's timing and my timing have very, very seldomly been the same thing. I think I need something so desperately. And God goes, you think you need that, but I'm going to teach you something so much better. And I hope that for all of us, in hindsight, as we look back on our lives, we can see some of those moments with more clarity to remind ourselves that God cares for us. First Peter 5, 7, it says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We might not know what we ought to pray for or how we ought to pray or even how we should deal with the situation that's in front of us, but we know that God cares for us, and so we call to him And we remind ourselves, he cares for me and he is at work within me. Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's this imagery that I have in my head of like, and we'll blame it on the ADD, but for those of you who don't have ADD, maybe you can relate too is that my path never is straight. My path is like, we're going to have a detour that way, and then a detour that way, and it's just this constant barrage of moving around in a very inefficient way because I think, man, i got to accomplish this. i got to do this. i gotta, I got to fix this. I've got to put this fire out. I've got to deal with all these things. And so often I forget that I just need to trust in the Lord, and he'll make straight my paths. He'll show me what really needs to be accomplished, what really needs to be done, and what are some things that maybe I shouldn't spend a lot of time or effort on. Prayer is, is vitally important to all of this. And I came across this, this quote from this guy that I've never actually read, so I don't know if he's actually a very good commentator. Uh, his name was John Brodus, but he said this, and I thought this was huge. He says, one may be a truly industrious man and yet poor in temporal things, but one cannot be a truly praying man and yet poor in spiritual things. I just got stuck on that statement. Our culture is so materialistic that we generally think of, when we talk about God's blessings to us, we generally think about stuff rather than spiritual things, rather than emotional things, rather than relationships, rather than the things that actually truly matter. At the end of your life, how much money you made or how big your car was or how big your house was, those kinds of things aren't going to have any weight. But at the end of your life, the relationships that you had and those that you get to spend eternity with the, the gifts that God has given you and have you learned to follow him, those are going to stay with us for all of eternity. And so Jesus uses this very everyday practical illustration. And I want to clarify this uh, in a couple of ways. First, the important thing is to realize that Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. So if you as an earthly father, if, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, well, how much more does your heavenly father know how to do that? Let me just clarify a couple things in this. I'll pick on you, Dustin, at the back because you've got a brand new baby in Victoria. Is your, you already love that child more than you possibly ever could have understood. And you know you're going to give her good things. And, and you know that, well, maybe you don't know this yet. You'll figure this out. 
She's going to ask for all kinds of things that she shouldn't get or that would be negative for her to get. And you as a good father, as a good mother, are going to go, man, I, I know what, what she should get and I know what she's asking for. And I'm going to give her the good thing even though she might think it's not the good thing. God is going to give us what is good and what is right because he knows how to give it to us. But let me just clarify this to you because maybe... While this is a general rule that's true, maybe you have a very different experience. Maybe you had a father who did not love you or was abusive or hurtful. Maybe the only time you got talked to was to get yelled at. And so maybe when you think about God as a father, that brings up all kinds of negative connotations in your head. And and, and if that's the case for you, I'm deeply sorry. Your mother and your father should be the ones that should care for you above anyone else in this world. And if they've been a poor example, first of all, I'm deeply sorry, but second of all, that doesn't negate the truth of what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it probably illustrates it that much more strongly. Jesus' point, and he uses a word that we don't like. He says, if you then who are evil, right? We don't think of ourselves as evil people probably. But Jesus' point is you who are corrupted by sin, and we all are, and we have selfish desires and thoughts, and, and the longer that you're a parent, the more you realize this, even though you want to give good gifts to your children, sometimes you just don't want to, because they're being a brat, and you just don't want to give them that good thing. And you're going to teach them, and they're going to learn, right? That never works well. Motivation is not always right. Jesus' point, if you know how to give good gifts, even though you're corrupted by sin internally, your Father in heaven is not, and he will never do something that is selfish. He will only give you what is for your good and for your benefit. And so if you don't have a good example of that in your own life, and if when you hear this word of like, God is my father, will my earthly father let me down, then the truth of this is reminding us that God loves you more than you've ever been loved by anyone. And you can trust in that. And even though you maybe have no tangible proof to say that your father will give you a good thing, your, spirit, your heavenly Father will give you everything that you do need. Here's the question, though. And we've talked about this lots, but I think this bears repeating over and over in our lives. What exactly is a good gift? Craig Blomberg says it this way, Often our prayers are not answered as originally desired because we do not share God's perspective in knowing what is ultimately a good gift for us. We need a far broader perspective. Now, this is the greatest example I can give because of the timing. What is tomorrow? And what if you're a parent and your kid comes home with like, the, do you still take pillowcases? Or is, no, is that just a cheap Mennonite thing? Okay, well, we took pillowcases because we weren't going to go buy something else. If you brought that thing home right full of candy and your loving parents said, you can just, you can just eat it all right now. And you're like, this is a good thing. My parents really love me. Well, you know that's crazy. And, and for so many reasons, right? And, and we as parents can see this and we know this is not for your benefit. And they might even ask you something that you just actually laugh out loud at. Because you have a different perspective and you go, <laughs> what you think you want here is so bad for you. And I'm not going to give it to you. And actually, we've probably said this as parents. I'm not going to do what you say because I love you. And then your kids go, No, if you love me, you'd give me what I want. 
Well, the more that I'm a parent and the more that I'm growing in this relationship, the more I see myself as the crummy little toddler before God just going, give me, give me, give me. I know you don't. And I need to repent of that. I need to recognize that what God gives me is actually for my good and for my benefit. It just might not be what I want. Here's another really good example. And if you're a little older, you'll get this one. When uh, Christmas comes, and how many do Christmas stockings? Is this a normal thing? Okay, like some of you. Okay, so this is a normal thing in our house. But Christmas stockings were like, I think really it was the way we had Christmas morning service. So I think it was this, hey, there's, there's one more thing, you know, for you to open. We did presents Christmas Eve. And it was like, oh, Christmas Day, there's something for you to wake up for so that you can open it so that you can be to church on time. I think that was really the goal. But, but I would open it up and it would be like, yes, and you'd open and you'd get socks. And as a kid, you're like, yes, right? No, you're so disappointed. And then I found myself this year legitimately saying to Shaylee, you know what would be a great Christmas present? I need socks and I need a shoehorn because I'm pretty tired of bending over to like put my own shoes on. Anybody relate to this? Some of you, I've been to your homes and you have a shoehorn, so don't pretend. There's these things where as we gain perspective and we see, man, like if I only got the wants, right? If I just listed out all these things that I have no need for but I want and I got all of them, it would actually be very negative for me. But God gives me the things that I really need. And so you as a parent go, man, you know, I don't have a lot of money for gifts, but I know that my kids need new socks and new underwear and new shoes and, you know, all these things. And so, hey, I'm going to gift these things to you. You haven't earned them. You don't deserve them in that sense. But because I love you and I'm a parent who gives good gifts, I want to give you what you need. And occasionally we get to give them the things that they want that, that maybe are not as important. But I think all of us as parents, if you're a parent here this morning, your hope is that when your child grows up, they look at you and they go, man, you might not have given me everything I wanted, but you gave me everything I needed. Well, that's true of God too. And so we need to open our perspective and see things from a different lens. And so the question is, well, how do we, how do, we do that? Well, he gives us verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. What is that? How do we know that verse? The golden rule. Okay, we're going to get back to that in a minute here. But the ending of this is really important too. For this is the law and the prophets. What does that sound like? Back in Matthew chapter 22. Uh, I'm just going to flip there real quick. And we looked at this in our Why Church series. But there's a very similar statement that Jesus makes, and I just want to make us aware of it. In verse uh, 36, someone comes up to him and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus responds this way. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does verse 40 say? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Does that not sound exactly like what he says here? For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is pointing out that for us to actually effectively do what we're called to do is we first got to love God and then we got to love people. And that sums up, in essence, that sums up all of the Old Testament. This is what it's leading to, that if we loved God and loved people, then we would live as people like this. 
So how do we change our perspective on that? Well, we recognize that it's Jesus who did for us what we could not do. We recognize that it's Jesus who, even though we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. The golden rule, as, as we would say, sums up how to love God and to love others. But here's the thing. This, is, this whole section is written on our motivations. And I think we really misunderstand this verse in a wrong way. So when it says, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them. And so we kind of have twisted it and going, if we want them to treat us nicely, what should we do? I'll treat them nicely so that they treat me nicely. That's the total wrong motivation. If we're doing that, we're only being kind to someone so that we can get something else. And the true measure of kindness and goodness is when you help somebody when they have no opportunity to repay you. Right? It's easy to loan money to someone who you know can pay you back. It's a whole other thing when you loan money to someone knowing that you may never get it back. Love costs us. And so when we think about the golden rule, it's not we do this so that, it's we should do this because God has loved us that way and so we want to love others that way regardless of what they may be able to do or not do in return. Because God has given me his grace and his mercy, that's what I want to give. Now real clear, or really quickly, let me just clarify this, is the golden rule, if you go through history, is not unique to Christianity. In fact, this saying was around in many ancient cultures long before Jesus came along. Sometimes we get really uncomfortable with a statement like that. But here's all that Jesus is doing, is he's taking a known expression to make a point. And while others may have impure motives for doing this golden rule, Jesus has spent the last couple of chapters dealing with our motives so that by the time he gets to this statement, we understand the statement in a way that is very, very different than most other ancient cultures. Most, uh, most scholars will argue that uh, the original view of this golden rule kind of thing was on a negative statement. Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. And so some get caught up in this arguing that Jesus is the first person to give this command in a positive light, but I think all that is is it misses the entire point of everything. If we're just like, well, Jesus says the same thing that everyone else has said, but he says it in a better way, we're kind of missing the point. Craig Blomberg says it this way. He says, from a Christian perspective, even negative commands imply positive actions. Even if we succeed in not murdering and in not hating or verbally abusing others, we still have not completely obeyed until we earnestly seek others' well-being. And that's Jesus' point. It's not just, man, if you can follow this and you can follow this and follow this. It's, do you earnestly want to seek the well-being of others? Now, here's the tough thing. For those that we love, I think we can usually generally say that to be true, right? What about for those that really don't love us? Or that are abusive or hurtful? Or mean? I think probably every one of you can think, probably right now, about someone that you have to work with or someone that you have to interact with regularly that wants to beat you down. And maybe not physically, but maybe they have a, who knows what their motives are, but maybe they're, they're constantly belittling you at work or telling you how poor of a job you're doing or saying that they expect so much different from you or whatever it might be. Do we earnestly want their well-being? When we go to bed at night, do we pray for that individual who, if we're really honest, we can't stand? 
but do we pray for them that God would reveal himself to them? That God would show them who he is. Not so that they become a Christian, so that they'd start to treat me better. Because then we just misunderstood the whole thing. We want them to find Jesus because we want them to be in eternity with God. That should be our motives. No matter how many times I read through 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the more I see Jesus focusing on motivations and the more clearly it comes to me just how impure my motivations really are. And that's something i got to work on and that's something that I'm sure that all of us has to work on. And so when we get to this point in our life, when we need to learn when I do something with an impure motive, I need to go to God and I need to confess that. And I need to deal with that. And then I need to earnestly seek the well-being of others. And so here's my challenge for you as we go this morning. I want you, maybe when you get home or after lunch or sometime throughout the day, I want you to really consider those people in your life who are really hard to love. And I want us to pray that God would change our hearts towards them and that we would see them the way that he sees them. As a child created by God in his image that he loves desperately. And that as we pray for them, we don't pray that they would change so that it would benefit us, but that we would learn to pray for one another all these other people, one another, all the people that we work with, all the people we interact with. And then we would say, God, would you save them? Would you show them who you are? And then would we be prepared to have the courage to be that vessel, to share with them the truth of Jesus? That's my challenge to us today. And when you don't know how to do it, and when you're like, man, it sounds good in theory, let's just go back to verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. If you don't know how to pray these things, just ask that God will give you the wisdom to learn how. God will give us the good gifts that we need in his timing, and we can learn to trust him. Let's pray. God, as we consider these verses and as we think about our own motivations for why we do the things that we do, it can be so easy to do things with selfish intent. And so, God, I pray that we would not do that. I pray that we would learn to care for those in our lives simply because you love them and you want to be in relationship with them. That our motivation would be that they would have an encounter with Jesus, not that my life would get easier. God, may we have the courage to pray for those who are hard to love this week. And would we ask you for the strength and the wisdom to learn how to do that? God, above all, we thank you that, as it says in Romans, that as we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Jesus is the model for us to follow. He has shown us how to do what we need to do. As we read through these verses in the Sermon on the Mount, would would we be reminded that you have equipped us with the Holy Spirit? so that we can submit to you and we can do the things that honor you so that others would see it and that they would come into your kingdom so that this would not be about us, but that it would be about you. God, thank you that you know how to give good gifts and that in your timing and in your perspective, you will give us what we need 
for what is actually truly our good and not what we think is our good. Help us to trust you in that even when it's hard. God, as we go from here, help us to consider these things. Help us to not just walk away and ignore them or pretend like we heard them and we know how to implicitly do them, but help us to continually go back to these words. Look at them, read them, consider them. And would you radically change us so that our hearts become more and more pure and that others would see a desire for Jesus and that they would come into faith with Jesus as well. So go with us today. Thank you for all you do for us. Amen.